First up, though, we have been talking a lot about what is happening in Stanley Park. A very divisive issue is the bike lane and the removal of the one lane of traffic to make way for bikes through the park. Well, today, that fight, or at least part of it, is going to find its way into a court file, uh, into uh, the BC Supreme Court. And joining me is lawyer Wally Opal, who represents the Prospect Points at Cafe. Thank you so much for being with us. Always good to be with you, Jill. Uh, so what has happened today? Well, we filed uh, an action in the Supreme Court, and uh, on behalf of Prospect Point, uh, which is owned by Nancy Stibbert, and also the Ferguson Point restaurant, uh, and Rob Grant is acting for them. So it's a joint action by, by the uh, two entities, and we're asking the Supreme Court to set aside the orders that were made by the park board. The orders are that, uh, as you pointed out, one lane would be restricted to vehicle traffic and the other lane would be exclusively for the use of cyclists and the access from the north shore would be closed so it's the same thing all over again uh, that resulted in chaos in the park uh, our argument here is that the decision of the park board is flawed uh, it's unreasonable and it was done without any public consultation and contrary to, to any evidence. You may recall that last year the um, there was chaos in the park because of the idling of the vehicles, and uh, the, uh, the, so many people did not have access to the park. The Disabilities Association has sent a very strong and compelling letter to the park board, and they've also uh, filed an action before the Human Rights Tribunal, and the city, for some reason, is defending that. Uh, so, so that's where we are. Uh, we say that the they did not consider any of the uh, the reasons that were offered by us. In February, I sent a letter to uh, the uh, general manager of the park board, Donnie Bosa Rosa, and I got no response. In that letter, I pointed out that our client Prospect Point is going to suffer irreparably if uh, this action goes ahead because we suffered last year when they ran a bike lane right through the middle of our parking lot without any kind of consultation. And uh, I also asked to be heard. Our client, Nancy Stibbert, is not unreasonable. Neither are the people who own the, uh, the tea house. We're saying that we're prepared to work with the park board and we're prepared to be reasonable. We're prepared to share the park uh, with other people, but we got no response. I sent another letter to the park board uh, in uh, March, and again, I got no response from that. I sent four uh, four phone calls to the senior planner, and she didn't see fit to respond to any of my calls. So really, it's the decision that's made by the park board without any kind of adherence to a democratic principles. You know, they're the, they're the only public body that I know of, a duly elected public body that doesn't pay attention or does not respond to queries or submissions that are that are made by members of the public. You know, I can call the a cabinet minister, I can call members of parliament, and they will all respond, but the park board doesn't do any of that. So that's where we are. Uh, we don't want to do this. It's a last resort. And uh, But, you know, we have a petition with 32,000 signatures on it, uh, people who are adversely affected, who will not have equal access to the park, and the park board simply will not respond to us. 
So now we're in the Supreme Court. And I think the city has to consider whether or not they're prepared to pay legal fees in order to fight this in, in court, whereas they could they could sit down with us and come up with some kind of meaningful dialogue, meaningful reconcil- some conciliation, uh, but they're not prepared to do that. So that's where your uh, Supreme Court action is the last resort. But uh, Rob Grant has filed the petition this morning on behalf of our client, Park the uh, Prospect Point, and on behalf of the uh, Tea House. Yeah, but we represent thousands of other people who have contacted me who are upset at what's going on in Stanley. Stanley Park is there for all of us. And uh, we're not saying that our clients have exclusive rights or possession of the park, but, uh, but we need to share the park. It's a jewel that uh, belongs to this city and to this province and to this country. And uh, so any decisions that are made should be made in a shared way so we can all sit down and have some kind of meaningful dialogue. So that's where we are. Is it strange for a Supreme Court, a B.C. Supreme Court justice, to be ruling on something made by a, a civic a decision made by a civic government, and in this case, the Park Board? Well, yes, uh, they can make that decision. It's a judicial review of a decision. They can make that decision if the decision is unreasonable, contrary to the ve- to the evidence. And there's a public interest involved here, and we're going to ask the Supreme Court to intervene. Uh, there's no doubt the city will argue, well, we have the right to make these decisions. But where the decision is made that has an adverse and negative effect upon the general public, then the Supreme Court has the basis in certain circumstances to set the decision aside. Uh, What kind of timeline do you think we're looking at with this petition being filed today? I I know that things in court often take quite some time, so I'm guessing that it's not going to be happening, uh, say, for this summer. But what kind of timeline would you like to see for a decision? Well, I would think that uh, that will take, uh, take effect sooner than that. It's a petition that filed in Supreme Court, and the Park Board in the city will have an opportunity to respond to that. And uh, so that's what we're relying on. I don't think it, the decision will, or the hearing will uh, be put off forever. Uh, I think it'll be done within a reasonable period of time. The Supreme Court is is accommodating to uh, to issues of this nature. And uh, so I expect that uh, we'll be heard uh, far sooner than later. Uh, in the meantime, what is your client doing, uh, the Prospect Point uh, Bar and Grill, as far as how do you even plan? I mean, not only is is she dealing with this happening with the roadway in the park, uh, she's also dealing with provincial restrictions when it comes to dining indoors. Uh, those are likely, I think people uh, are, are thinking they are going to be extended perhaps into the summer. How's your client dealing uh, with well, all of that? Well, that's a good good question. They're very apprehensive. Uh, they've been there for a long time. The uh, Prospect Point restaurant is iconic in that people from all over the world go there, and many people go to that restaurant. Uh, we rely, our client relies on vehicle traffic to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to visitors who come to the restaurant, and they can't do any real planning. They can't do any financial planning with all of this up in the air. So all we did was ask the park board to listen to us, to listen to our concerns and listen to the concerns of the tea house, because this is going to have a negative effect on both entities, not to mention the uh, 
adverse effect it's going to have on the members of the general public who want to go to the park on a weekend. And uh, I don't think our request was unreasonable, uh, but we didn't even receive the courtesy of a reply. And uh, as I said again, democratic institutions such as the park board are obligated to listen to us, to listen to any concerns that, that our clients may have. And they've done none of that. They've just gone ahead and ignored the wishes of the public. And they've done so on some flawed process. They're saying, well, we're concerned about greenhouse effects. Well, how do you think greenhouse effects will be, uh, uh, how, how will that play out when cars will be idling in the, in the park? Uh, and that's what happened last year. So, so all we're asking is a reasonable, appre- a reasonable uh, opportunity to be heard, and uh, and and to be to be treated fairly, as any democratic process uh, will allow us to do. All right. So we'll be waiting to see uh, what the decision is and what happens next uh, in this fight. Wally Opal, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this update. It's always good to be with you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, today's COVID-19 briefing, which is supposed to have a lot of information about uh, people in hospital, more numbers and breakdown of what we're dealing with. That's happening at two o'clock and we will bring that to you live right here on CKNW. Right now, though, we're taking a look at patio dining. As you know, in-house dining is suspended right now. It is not allowed until at least April 19th, possibly further, but restaurants with patios are able to serve on those patios. And we've certainly seen a lot of different establishments uh, finding creative ways to make patio space. So so should we be concerned about some patios and safety when it comes to variants of COVID-19 and potential for exposure? Well, Dr. Reza Afshari is a clinical professor with occupational and environmental health at UBC and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, what should we be concerned about or what should we look at as far as a patio? Because some are very open, others have the plastic walls or some kind of, of shields to, to keep people from the elements. Is there a concern uh, that some are more susceptible to uh, still being able to spread COVID? Uh, in general, the risk of transmission in closed spaces such as indoor dining and enclosed patios should be similar as long as the physical characteristics of the place and also the behavior of the people who are sitting there are are similar, but there are differences. Physical characteristics is is the size of a place, the ventilation capacity, the number of people seated. So basically we are taking all these variables together to draw a line above which it will not be safe for people to sit in. Uh, There are behavioral patterns also, the physical activity if people are doing their dancing or breathing deeply, speaking loudly, or when when they are going, for example, touching the so-called highly touched surfaces, such as facet and and doorknobs when they are going to the shared bathrooms, uh, they are also increasing the possibility of transmission. Managing the risk is certainly a matter of science, but also it's a matter of practicality and uh, judgment. Uh, There is no fixed formula. Uh, that we can say, you know, do this and you would be safe. But it's a probabilistic approach. It's the possibility that we can decrease. The overall risk is being considered by the number of uh, people are seated, multiplied by the space, and multiplied by the 
ventilation capacity and, and uh, there would be a, a line. The risk of uh, transmission in outdoor patios in Vancouver that are completely open to outside from both sides, that's the regulation as required by the British Columbia regulation, is different from the dining in. So I assume that um, if, if the uh, regulation are being kept, it does make sense that uh, the uh, outdoor patios are still open. If the new variant is, is spreading fast, which is more transmissible and also more, um, more, does have more morbidity, so we have to be more careful. And, you know, depending on the situation, the number of people who are there, uh, who are exposed and infected at BC, and also uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the fatality or, or, uh, or uh, morbidity of the virus, we can uh, dynamically change the regulation. Uh, so should people be concerned then if we're going to a patio, say, that has the thick plastic barriers uh, to keep the wind and to keep the rain away? Does, is that really any different than, say, being in an enclosed space? It is different because the ventilation is different. The capacity of ventilation went from the both sides. Air can flow. It is, it is much more than an enclosed space that the ventilation is, is limited. Also, the number of people who are sitting there, the physical distancing, if they are maintained. So basically, the risk, the way that it's being calculated right now, uh, make it possible to suggest that if under these circumstances, uh, outdoor patios can work. But it is important to keep the physical distances uh, when, when you are sitting. It is important for the both sides to be open. If those uh, variables, those issues are not taken into place, so it would be difficult to say it's safe to sit. Uh, and when you talked about, too, the touching different surfaces and depending on how busy it is, uh, is the risk, do you think, more, if you're sitting at a patio, is the risk more how close you are to the person or, I guess, people that, that, that maybe are right at the next table or, or people that aren't in your, your so-called group? Uh, is the risk being close to people and having the virus spread that way? Or is it also touching things, uh, touching maybe a table or a cup or something that maybe hasn't been cleaned p- properly? No, if they are cleaned properly, that's not a problem. Um, also, you know, we have to be uh, focusing on the factors that we can change and are more effective. Physical distancing is important. So if the uh, distance between tables are enough, so we feel safe. Also, the time that people are spending there is important. So if you stay in a closed door for a longer period, so the possibility of transmission increases. I have no uh, concern about the cups and, and you know, spoons and the other uh, folks that people touch because they are being cleaned. Uh, but when, you know, someone is infected and they move uh, besides a person, another table, which could be, um, you know, one of them are uh, infected and they are going, for example, to the toilet and they touch some surfaces, it, the, the, the possibility increases. Be aware that the transmission through air is far more effective than transmission from touching uh, different surfaces. Right. And just one other question. You mentioned ventilation. Are, are there things people should look at to make sure, uh, yes, there is air moving through the patio? As you mentioned, the, oh, the ends are open. How important is ventilation? It is absolutely important. Not one side, at least two sides of the uh, outdoor pat- patio should be open uh, uh, until, um, I mean, to feel safe. And it's a regulation now in BC. If it's not open from two sides, they cannot be open.
All right. Good advice and good to, to look at that and to ensure people that it is safe and uh, if done right, as, as most things, that it is absolutely fine to be doing that. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, you might recall, uh, we talked about this on the show a few weeks ago. It was just an awful story and the pictures just made your heart go out for 119 dogs that were all rescued from a trailer in the Fort Nelson area of BC. Uh, you might recall uh, the BC SPCA was called. The owner thought that uh, there were maybe 30 dogs inside the trailer and they just kept coming out that window. The door had been frozen shut and they were in rough shape, but many of them. Well, there has been a bit of an update and joining us to talk more about where things are today is Eileen Drever, Senior Protection Officer and Stakeholders Relations for the BC SBCA. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Well, they were just, I know so many people fell in love with the pictures and saw the pictures of these matted dogs and then the getting bathed and helped and nursed back to good health. How are they doing now? They're coming around really quite nicely. In fact, I think we placed about 29 dogs up for adoption. And um, if anybody's interested, check out the BCSPCA website. Um, It's remarkable how these dogs have been treated and how they've they've come around. So we're still working on quite a few of them. Um, Some are still very fearful and they have to learn to trust us and um, we're doing some behavior modification with them we still some still have medical concerns and you have to remember as well if if you're looking to adopt one of these wee souls that these dogs could be scarred mentally so they may have issues for the rest of their life but we you know we can work with them and you can work with them what kinds of things would you be dealing with then? Because we often hear about uh, places where dogs maybe have been left outside, uh, they've not been socialized, and they have issues in that sense. But this case seemed a little different in that there were 119 dogs all in a very close area. So what kinds of issues do they have to deal with now? Well, they were used to dealing with their pack, not so much um, humans. So they just have to get they have to get used to being around humans, and there's different senses and smells that they're just not used to. And if if they're fearful, they withdraw. So we want to we're currently working on them learning to trust again, and and for them to come around. It will take a while, and once once they come around, they'll make fantastic companions. It's all about trusting. Uh, have you had much interest uh, in people wanting to adopt them? Oh, Jill, it's amazing. People are are absolutely amazing. Yes, we've had a wonderful response and the support we've received from the public is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, and I know you can't talk a lot about investigations uh, and, and especially when they're ongoing, but is this one an ongoing investigation? Because I know last time we talked to you, it was kind of unclear how the owner had got into this uh, position. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's still an open file. The investigation continues. And as I said before, sometimes people are just as vulnerable as their animals. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the, the SPCA seized 38 dogs from a breeder north of Kamloops yesterday. Um, and these, these dogs are also in our care. They're all Dachshunds and Dachshund puppies. Um, 
And this individual was given an opportunity to rectify the problem. And they did not rectify the problem. And as a result, we applied for and executed a warrant yesterday and removed all the animals. I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you more about that because it does seem like we're dealing with with very different situations here. So in the the 119 dogs, uh, the good news is uh, they're they're getting healthier. Uh, Not 29 of them, as you said, ready uh, to be adopted. People can make uh, applications. So talk a bit more about this one, though, because this is a breeder, a Kamloops area breeder. So somebody who you would hope knows better and, and would put the, the, the health of the dogs first, but it doesn't appear that was happening. Well, you would hope they would know how to care for their dogs, but um, these dogs were forced to live in amongst feces. Um, the ammonia count was so high it, they're they're poorly socialized and it it was just and these these dogs were being bred for profit so it's totally unacceptable and in this case um we i get no sympathy for the owner let me just say that uh, i'm looking at pictures of them right now and uh, they are some adorable <laughs> adorable dogs i can't even imagine uh, leaving a dog in a condition like that uh, is this another uh, another example though of when people are purchasing dogs and don't uh, research it or or maybe don't see the red flags uh, that that's how breeders like this are able to continue absolutely uh, so again it's buyer beware if you're looking to uh, adopt or, or to purchase a puppy from a breeder you have to do your homework and you want to see the mum and dad and you want to see them in their own environment don't meet somebody at a gas station and purchase a puppy from them you have no idea what that puppy or what the parents have gone through uh, so what kind of issues would these dogs have then well it's really it, the environment was the main issue um you know having forcing these dogs to live in amongst feces and ammonia and there were injurious objects there. So as soon as we removed them from that situation, that relieved their distress. Now that being said, they're still under veterinary care and each and every one is being assessed. And as far as the investigation then, do you anticipate could the person in charge of this breeding operation face charges? I would say yes. As a possibility, we may recommend charges to Crown Council. All right. Uh, anything else you wanted to add, either about this story or about the, the 119 dogs and their condition and their kind of where they are at today as well? Well, you know, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to your listeners, to to the public in general. If If we did not receive public support, we couldn't do the work we're doing. And each and every one of your listeners can make a difference and are making a difference. So a huge thank you. Right. I think one of our listeners, now that I I think back, it was in March, but one of our listeners made a really big donation. I think he was very moved by the story of the 119 dogs and was happy to, to, to try and help out that way. That's incredible. That's really, really incredible. And, you know, people make, even if it's only $5, Every penny counts, and their their donations are going to a good cause. And these wee these wee faces, when you see the pictures of these animals, it just melts your heart. All right, Eileen, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Joe. Take care. 
Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, today's uh, news conference, the COVID-19 briefing happening around two o'clock, and we will bring that to you live when it begins. We are talking a little bit more, though, about what is happening in the United States. And as you've heard, I'm sure the CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., is continuing its warning. And that warning includes uh, that travelers should avoid all travel to Canada because of the COVID-19 risk. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Not a huge change. And I know on the website, the CDC in the United States really is is avoiding travel anywhere uh, outside of the U.S., uh, including Canada. What are your thoughts on this? Well, from first reading it, I was I was shocked. I was shocked because not only is it a travel advisory, they've they've listed it as the highest level four, considering Canada a danger zone. I never thought I would see this. This is unprecedented for the CDC to say don't go to Canada, and they're advising highly against any Americans, even if they're vaccinated, like myself, from traveling to Canada. What do, do you think it's because of what's happening and the fact that the United States is doing a much better job of vaccinating residents that they don't want them coming to, to countries where uh, you could still get it, you might not have full protection and, and that there's that risk? Or what do you think prompted uh, the going up to the, the most highest uh, level of alert? Well, I think a number of things. So, you know, I know that there's a lot more vaccinations available in the U.S. right now from reading online. I think 1% of the Canadian population has been vaccinated versus, I think, 15 or 20% of the Americans. So that's obviously a risk. The other issue is the numbers. Like when you hear the Canucks, the whole team being wiped out now uh, by positive um, coronavirus tests, obviously these numbers, these issues are getting back to the Americans. And the CDC has taken an overly cautious approach to Americans traveling to Canada, which for years has been considered a safe area to go to. Uh, but given the pandemic and the fact that there is uh, the, there is so much, and like you said, you just mentioned the Canucks, and we're dealing with the variants in Canada as well, uh, is it any surprise that they would prefer if people didn't come here? Well, I don't think it's a surprise, but I think it's it's shocking given how Trudeau has been trying to you know have a better rapport with our new president down here. Everyone was looking for kind of, you know, a step in the right direction. And here you have, you know, basically the CDC now saying it's a danger zone to go to Canada. So this is an absolute PR nightmare for Trudeau. When you read the CDC saying this, when he's trying to repair these relations, and, you know, quite frankly, I don't think you're going to see the border reopen anytime soon. I know I've been talking about maybe, you know, summer or, or fall, but when you hear the CDC calling Canada a danger zone, it's going to be a long time before that border reopens, in my mind. Oh, that was, I was going to ask you about that as well, because I wasn't sure if they were perhaps upping the alert level uh, to really get people to understand, don't go there unless you have to, unless it's an essential trip. Uh, Would they do that and then open the border in hopes that people wouldn't still come because it's a level four? Or is that an indication that we, like you just said, perhaps are nowhere near that border reopening? 
Well, yeah, we're, I don't think you're going to see that border open anytime soon. And most Americans, I can go up there because I'm dual. I can enter any time, but, you know, there's the 14-day quarantine. But your average American is not going to be allowed into Canada regardless of this CDC travel advisory. So it's, it's almost putting a nail in the coffin to keep this border closed for many, many more months, possibly into next year, 2022. Who knows? Uh, would you I mean, even if it wasn't a level four, like you said, though, with the quarantine, if people were coming to Canada in, in a way, not an essential worker. Uh, so you did have to quarantine. Isn't that a huge deterrent to people anyway? Oh, absolutely. I'm a great example. I haven't been north for 13 months. And literally, I can see White Rock from my office. I can walk to the border. So that quarantine, the 14 day quarantine is a massive deterrent because unless you go to Hawaii, there's no similar quarantine that's enforced in the U.S. Some states recommend it, but nobody's enforcing it. And so do you think, too, then, well, people will look at this. I mean, would it, what will it take to change, I guess, is a, lot, is a question that a lot of people would have. And is it that Canada's vaccination level, uh, percentage of population vaccinated needs to get to a certain level uh, before they're even going to start looking at that? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, number one, vaccination levels are going to have to get on par with the U.S., percentages, but also you're going to have to see the numbers going down like they have in many states. I know some states they've spiked in the U.S., but it seems like many provinces, Alberta, B.C., Ontario, the numbers are just rising with no end in sight on how high they're going to go. Uh, And you mentioned as well uh, that you haven't been uh, across the border in 13 months. Uh, And at the same time, I know there are essential workers or truck drivers that we depend on for uh, bringing goods across the border. I know there are childcare workers or healthcare workers uh, that cross that border every day. And so I think people look at that as well and think, well, uh, I mean, I guess, yes, they're being very careful and they're taking all of these measures, but they're, they're not quarantining. They don't have to do that. So there are it's not like nobody is crossing the border right now. Well, exactly. So I think, you know, the crossings have gone down by like 98%, but there still is a lot of traffic going over the border. I just drove down last night from Seattle to Portland for a client's interview. All over the roads are BC trucks going up and down. So those people are going back and forth over the border freely. So there is still a lot of cross-border movement. Maybe at some time in the future that will be stopped. Who knows where this is going to end and at what time? Uh, Did you ever think we'd be talking about this on April 8th, 2021? When they closed the border last year, and I was starting to be told after about a month, so this is about a year ago, last April, after it had been closed for about a month, that it may be closed until the end of the year. When I told clients that, they were gasping. They couldn't believe it. So here we are, you know, a year after that, and it's anybody's guess when that border will reopen. Like, who knows at this point? And even Trudeau has said they'll open eventually. Well, you know, there's no plans being made. There's no, you know, they need to get into discussions with the Americans so you don't have the CDC issuing danger zone alerts for Canada. You know, most Americans don't feel uncomfortable traveling to Canada, but when you start seeing these, you know, press releases issued by the CDC or warnings, it's going to make Americans concerned about going up there eventually for skiing, for Whistler or getting on cruise ships. So hopefully things will get back to normal at some point in the future. All right, Len, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much, though. Good to talk with you again. Thanks, Joel. Have a good day.